you please, to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, we continue in our series through the book of Jonah. And this morning, our sermon is entitled, Pagan Repentance. Our keywords for our worshipers in training are Nineveh, repentance, and faith. Now, in the history of the American church, two of the most notable figures are men by the names of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Now, Mr. Whitfield and Mr. Edwards were contemporaries in the 1730s and 40s, and they were used mightily by God in what's been called the First Great Awakening. It was during this time that Christianity for many people became deeply personal and it stirred up a deep abiding sense of uh, spiritual conviction and a need for personal holiness. Now, there's no doubt that the Great Awakenings left an indelible impression on the development of our nation. And while there was a second Great Awakening later on, it was nothing compared to the first. And in many ways, it lacked in genuineness and was fraught with errors. What I've always found fascinating about God using George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards during the Great Awakening is the difference between the two men. Benjamin Franklin, who we're all familiar with, was by no means a Christian. And yet, Benjamin Franklin loved and admired George Whitfield, even though he rejected his theology. One time, Benjamin Franklin wrote of Whitfield's preaching, Every accent, every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-tuned and well-placed that without being interested in the subject, one could not help being pleased with the discourse, a pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music. Jonathan Edwards' wife, Sarah, once wrote a letter to her brother about George Whitfield's preaching, and she wrote this, He is a born orator. You have already heard of his deep-toned yet clear and melodious voice. Oh, it is perfect music to listen to that alone. You remember that David Hume thought it worth going 20 miles to hear him speak, and Garrick, an actor who envied Whitfield's gifts, said, I love this quote, he could move men to tears in pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. It is truly wonderful to see what a spell this preacher often casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. A prejudiced person I know might say that this is all theatrical artifice and display, but not so will anyone thank who has seen and known him. He is a very devout and godly man, and his only aim seems to be to reach and influence men the best way. He speaks from the heart, all aglow with love, and pours out a torrent of eloquence, which is almost irresistible. Now, there's been much speculation as to why Whitfield preached the way he did, but there has never been any question about his giftedness. And as Christians, we know uh, of the clear evidence that he was used by God in incredible ways for many years. Whitfield preached entirely without notes. And he had a booming voice that could be heard by thousands at one time. Every word was gripping. 
Now think of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is a man who has been said to be the smartest mind that America has ever produced. But his approach to preaching was very different. In July 1741, Jonathan Edwards was invited to preach in a neighboring town called Edenfield, Connecticut. And just prior to him being invited there, Edwards had preached his now very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, to his own congregation in Northampton. But there was very little response from the people. Nevertheless, he decided he was going to try it again. And so he preached the same sermon in Edenfield. Now, it's said of Edwards that when he preached, he was highly unimpressive. He read his sermons directly from his notes. He never made eye contact with anybody. And he did it all in an even, nearly monotone voice. And some accounts suggest that he would sort of lean forward on the pulpit and rest his hand on his head while he read to the people. Edwards didn't think shouting or theatrics or any of this was appropriate in preaching because he wanted people to be convicted of their sin and convinced of the truth by the word of God alone, not by his oratory skills or some kind of emotional frenzy. So it's interesting to note what happened the morning when Edwards went to Edenfield and preached. One eyewitness wrote this in his diary. We went over to Edenfield where we met dear Mr. Edwards of Northampton, who preached a most awakening sermon from the words in Deuteronomy 32. And before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying that went out through ye whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am going to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ? And so forth. So yet, ye minister was obliged to desist. Ye shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing. After some time of waiting, the congregation were still. So yet a prayer was made by Mr. W. And after that, we descended from the pulpit and discoursed with the people some in one place and some in another, an amazing and astounding power of God was seen and several souls were hopefully wrought upon that night. And oh, ye cheerfulness and pleasantness of their countenances. Now I find this comparison between these two men fascinating. They were friends at the time. They worked together from time to time, but the Lord could not have used two preachers of more opposite one another in terms of style than he did these two men. But the reality is that when God wants there to be a true revival, he will use whatever means he deems appropriate. The truth be told, in terms of oratory skills, there are very few preachers ever that will be anything like George Whitfield. Most of us probably more like a Jonathan Edwards. And yet... God uses his truth to bring conviction of sin, repentance, and faith to the hearts of men, no matter whom it's delivered by. If God desires to see a man converted, that man surely will be converted. Now, as we consider the preaching of Jonah in Nineveh this morning, I want us to take notice of what Jonah said and how he said it. Even more importantly, we will look at what God did with it. Perhaps you already know, Jonah was far more like a Jonathan Edwards than he was a George Whitfield, at least when he went into Nineveh. And yet, just the same as God did with these two men, 
He brought true revival to a vast multitude of souls. Now, last week, we left off with Jonah standing on a Mediterranean beach, having been vomited onto dry land by the great fish that consumed him. We looked at Jonah's repentance and the mercy of God. And so this morning, the first thing we see is this, that God, in his mercy, gives us second chances. Let's look, beginning in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, in some ways, what God says to Jonah here is like the first time that he called him to go to Nineveh. In chapter 1 and verse 2, God said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This time, the Lord says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And there is a difference between these two that's interesting to note. The first time... God was giving Jonah a message. He was to go and preach against the city because the city was filled with all kinds of evil. But now the second time, God gives Jonah a command. Go there and say what I will tell you to say. This time around, Jonah was set to obey God unconditionally. It's hard to imagine going to a place that you know to be hostile, a place filled with opposition to you and to the word you bring, not knowing what you're going to say, not knowing how you're going to say it until you get there. But that's what God commanded Jonah to do, total obedience no matter what the message would be. Now, thinking about Jonah here, we see something of the character of God as it relates to his people We've already considered in the past two weeks how how Jonah certainly did not deserve God's mercy. He disobeyed, he ran, he sought to hide from the presence of the Lord. He put others in danger because of his sin. He refused to pray. And yet God was merciful to Jonah in the midst of his sin. He appointed a great fish to swallow him up that he would be brought to the end of himself. God did not destroy Jonah even though he deserved it. God was merciful. God gave Jonah a second chance. Now consider yourself. How many times have you disobeyed God in your life? You've deserved punishment for your sin all along the way as you've rebelled against God and yet how many opportunities has he given you to obey What is it in your life? What is the particular sin that you bring before God time and time again? You repent. You ask for God's forgiveness. You promise yourself and you make a vow with God that you will never do it again. And maybe you walk faithfully for a week or a month, but then you find yourself right in the middle of it again. What if God were not merciful? What if God gave us one chance and as, as soon as an offense was committed, we received the justice of his wrath? Not one of us would make it out of the womb. We are conceived in sin. And we carry on through life in our thoughts, 
in our selfish actions, in our lying, in our stealing, in our fornicating, and coveting, and blaspheming, and idolizing. We all have rap sheets longer than we can even imagine. We are repeat offenders of sin. You name it, we have done it. But God, in his infinite mercy, has chosen to give us another chance to make it right. Something of God's character is displayed when Jesus instructs his disciples in Matthew 18, when Peter asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus responded, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, so long as forgiveness is sought, it is to be granted. There is no limit to God's forgiveness of our sin, of his Repentant people, as they come and they confess sin, the Lord is faithful to forgive us our sins. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no limit. And this is the great blessing that we as believers can hold on to. The Lord is infinitely merciful. He's full of second and third and fourth and hundredth and thousandth chances so long as there is true repentance in the heart of the confessor. However, there are those, and this is some of you here this morning, you've heard the word of God time and time again, and you continue to reject it. You hear that God has made calls unto you to repent and believe, and yet you love your sin. You love self-willed pursuits in life, and, and while God is calling out to you time and time again, you continue to refuse him. You continue to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. You continue to reject his command God is indeed a God of second chances, but no man knows the day of his end. It's like the people in the days of Noah. They mocked him. They reviled him. They rejected the faithful man as he built an ark in the middle of the desert. But when the storms came, they sought refuge, but the doors were sealed shut and it was too late. There was no salvation for people outside of God's merciful ark. There was no more life. And for some of you, friends, you may think you're just holding on to your sin because you enjoy it, and maybe one day, maybe one day you'll repent and turn to the Lord. Today is the day. Turn to Christ lest the doors of the ark slam shut and you come to the end in judgment. God has given us all many opportunities. So when he offers you mercy, why do you continue in rebellion? God is a God of mercy. God is a God of second chances. But when, when life on this earth ends, there are no more chances. Turn to God in repentance that you may have life. Well, the second thing we see this morning from our text is that simple, fitly spoken truth can be used more powerfully than lofty, eloquent words. Let's look beginning in verse 3. 
So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, it took a few days. It took several rather trying events. But Jonah finally obeys the Lord and heads to Nineveh. Now, the text says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. The King James Version says, Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city of three days' journey. Now, nobody knows exactly what the meaning of that is. However, it's likely one of two things. Either Jonah's journey lasted three days in Nineveh, he stayed for three days, or Nineveh was such a large city, it was a three days journey to cover the terrain as he walked through the streets and preached to the people. Whatever it is, we we recognize at least that the task before Jonah was significant and it lasted three days. Now we have to look at what Jonah preached and we must admit that this was no dynamic sermon, right? Right? He wasn't gathering everybody around to pour his heart out in an evangelistic message to remember for the ages. In the Hebrew, his sermon was actually only five words. In English, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But you know, one of the reasons things like proverbs and colloquialisms are so popular with people is because they are effective. They're easy to remember. They are, they are simple, fitly spoken truths that are, they're not, they're not shrouded in a hidden meaning. There's no eloquent language or lofty phrases with them usually. They get to the point, and sometimes that point will penetrate us deeply. It challenges us to think beyond a word count of the thing that's spoken. And while not a proverb, we see the same sort of thing happen with Jonah's preaching here. Now what's implied in Jonah's proclamation is an impending action, something that is yet to come. Overthrown means to turn upside down. And in the scriptures, it most frequently refers back to the catastrophic judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it tells of a terrible end for Nineveh. And with that, with that proclamation, those simple words, there was a great awakening in Nineveh. Revival broke out among the people. Now, a true revival is what happens when God comes and visits. Samuel Davies was an evangelist in the northeastern U.S. during and after the First Great Awakening. He's also the fourth president of Princeton University. And Davies described revival this way. He said, men are estranged from God and engaged in rebellion against him. And they love to continue so. They will not submit nor return to their duty and allegiance. Hence, there is need for a superior power to subdue their stubborn hearts and sweetly constrain them to subjection, to inspire them with the love of God and an implacable destillation of all sin. And for this purpose, the Holy Spirit of God is sent into the world 
For this purpose, he is at work from age to age upon the hearts of men. Jonathan Edwards says this about revival. The work of God is carried on with greater speed and swiftness, and there are often instances of sudden conversations and conversions that come at that time. So it was with the apostles' days when there was a time of the most extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit there ever was. How quick and sudden were conversions in those days. And so it is in some degree, whenever there is an extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit of God, more or less so in proportion to the greatness of that effusion. Brothers and sisters, this is something we ought to be praying for, for our community. And everywhere the gospel is rightly proclaimed. Mankind is in such a state of sin that he cannot be saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and the faith that comes from regeneration are gifts from God. And so when, when God works in revival, it's not because we, we schedule some special meetings or because we set the mood right or invite the right preacher to come. The cause is not because of our works, but only in the abundant influence of the Spirit of God. And if you and I were to spend three days, like Jonah did in Nineveh, and just walk around the streets of Rinkin, Georgia, would there be any question that the greatest need for each and every person is revival of the soul? We'd, be, we'd begin to feel what G.K. Chesterton called the sense of the absence of God. God is not in men's thoughts. Many have never heard of Christ. They don't go to a place of worship on the Lord's Day. They've never really been invited to one, perhaps. They may never have met or spoken to an unashamed Christian. There would seem to be no hope of them being one for Christ unless God penetrates the rows of homes in our community. And his presence reverberates in the hearts of the multitudes as they hear the proclaiming of the truth of God's word and their state of sin and their need for repentance. That's revival. And that is what we need, a sense of God's presence, a work of God to instantly transform men and women and children from self-serving sinners to God-fearing lovers of the truth and obedient, faithful followers of the word of God. That's what we need to pray for. That's exactly what happened in Nineveh. Jonah didn't go there knowing that revival was going to break out. He knew God was going to do something he didn't necessarily want him to do. Could he have imagined that God would save them all? He simply went to Nineveh following God's command, finally. And all the results were left up to the Lord. There was nothing extraordinary about Jonah's preaching. And it makes it all the more clear to us that this truly is a work of God. But it's what's behind those words that Jonah preached that's so important. Jonah spoke to the people using the law of God. He, he used the force of the truth of judgment to bear down on the hearts of his hearers that they would be brought to repentance. You know, it's often in our day 
that many will seek to downplay the reality of the judgment. There's a tendency to to want to pull back from the truth that in the end, everyone who has ever lived will stand before God and give an account for the life they have lived. And if we're not depending on Jesus' righteousness alone for our salvation, we will forever be cast into hell. The prophets didn't shy away from that reality. The great evangelists of the great awakening in America by no means shied away from that reality. But we can never hope for revival lest man knows his peril. It must be clear in our minds that we are, as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sin. If man doesn't know he's dead, and if man doesn't know there's a judgment, man will never see a need for life, and man will never see a need for rescue. Jonah's message wasn't very eloquent, but it doesn't have to be. It was true, and it was clear, and it impressed on the hearts of the people the very clear reality that they, should they continue in their own way, that the Lord would visit them in judgment in just 40 days. This was enough to bring them to repentance. We see that in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And while we look at Jonah's few words and find their effect to be quite puzzling, consider this reality. Our own experiences may suggest that most individual conversions came about with a few words that God used to arrest us. It may be something in a sermon that you've heard before, but it is likely, perhaps even more likely today, that that there were a few stumbling words of a witness by a Christian that we know that came into our lives. The way it was said, the time at which it was said, and in our own spiritual condition, we heard it. God used these things to bring us to his kingdom. And if you are a Christian, you can thank God for simple, fitly spoken words of truth that he used to bring you to himself. It's a blessing that God uses stumbling, stammering words to bring men to repentance and faith in Christ. Well, now the people of Nineveh were crushed by the truth that Jonah spoke, and it led to repentance. So we see, thirdly in our text, that genuine repentance is evident in both word and action. Look beginning in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published Through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, lest them not feed or drink water. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Patrick Fairburn was a um, Puritan, and he wrote this, whether among great or small, whenever the word of God really takes hold of the conscience, 
The first symptom always discovers itself in such a spirit of heartfelt concern as we find here. Leading men to grapple in earnest with the things of God and rendering it impossible for them any longer to trifle with interests so momentous and dangers so pressing. From the king of Nineveh all the way down to the lowliest of men, we see genuine repentance. And it's signified by their their fasting and their putting on of sackcloth and ashes. The sackcloth was was made out of a, a black goat's hair, and it was coarse and rough and thick and very uncomfortable. And they would cover it in the ashes of burnt wood. It was a common material worn in times of grieving and in times to show repentance for sin. So all of Nineveh was covered in sackcloth and ashes and by decree of the king, even the animals. Additionally, all of this was accompanied with a fast and a fast almost always is used to drive us to prayer and to remind us of our dependence upon God. And we see here something of true repentance. Externally, yes, but we we also see it as it's described by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7. He writes about a grief that exists with those who are truly repentant. It's a godly grief. It's, It's sorrow that comes as a result of our sin and leads us to repentance. Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment." You see, without godly grief, there is no true repentance. Zechariah prophesied, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. The psalmist wrote in 38, 18, I will be sorry for my sin. There's sorrow. Thomas Watson wrote, a woman may as well expect to have a child without pangs as one can have repentance without sorrow. Now, there are times when people believe preachers rather than believe God, and so their repentance is insincere. It's lacking in true sorrow. It doesn't produce the very thing repentance is designed by God to produce, namely a godliness and a longing for holiness that comes through true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance means that you realize that you are guilty. You're a vile sinner in the presence of God that you deserve the wrath and the punishment of God and that you are hell-bound. It means that you, you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you and you long to get rid of it and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost to you, The world is in its mind and outlook as well as its practice and you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you go after Christ, your nearest and your dearest and the whole world may call you a fool or say you are a religious maniac 
You may have to suffer financially. You may suffer many losses, but it makes no difference because this is true repentance. Whatever the cost, it's worth it. That's what we see with the Ninevites, isn't it? Surely, were the rest of Assyria to look at their countrymen in Nineveh and their experience in this moment of godly grief, archaeologists say maybe there were 175,000 or more people there. All of them, along with their animals, fasting, covered with sackcloth and ashes, crying out to God, one by one, seeking God's mercy. What would be said of them by all the others around them? What would their fellow countrymen think? They're crazy. They've gone mad. They're fools. Ah, But we know it is a work of God who has, by the power of his spirit, brought them to the end of themselves, fearing the power and holiness of God and wanting to be made right with him. Friend, have you encountered the power of God? Do you recognize your guilt? Do you know that you are a sinner in the presence of God deserving wrath and punishment? If you are not a child of God depending on the finished work and complete righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, run to him. Repent and turn to him and pray and ask him to do as he promises and not cast you away. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be a people who pray that God would continue to fill us with godly grief for our sins and that we are brought time and time again before him in repentance. We're going to sin, but thanks be to God that for those who are in Christ Jesus, we not need fear the penalty of that sin. We simply need to confess as sin and rest in Jesus' perfect fulfillment of the law that we have broken. Does that mean we just sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. We turn from our sin and we seek with God's help through the means of grace to live upon him alone and not our own goodness and our own righteousness and our own efforts. But have you been made right with God? Is your repentance before God genuine? It will be evident not just in your words, but in the life you live, in your actions. Well, there's a great promise in all of this, and we see it in our final point this morning, and that is this. God is merciful to those who repent and believe. Look at verse 9. Who knows? This is the king speaking. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, very clearly, if the God of the universe wants to destroy you, he will. If God's desire is destruction and judgment, why send a preacher? Why tell them of a coming judgment? And for those of you who are not Christians, I wonder if you'll consider, why are you here right now? God has brought you here this morning. Why? God's call unto men is to repent and to believe, and it is not insincere. God desires that you would come in repentance and faith in Christ. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. 
Do you see how the king here, how he, how he throws himself on Christ? He throws himself on the mercy of God, which is found in the work of Christ alone. He says, who knows? Maybe, maybe God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's all speaking of the character of God. He is infinitely merciful. He is infinitely kind. He is infinitely loving. And if we are to depend on anything to show us mercy, while all others will fail us, when we come to God in the way that he has commanded us to, we can rest assured that he will never turn us away. Jesus tells us that in John 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God indeed showed mercy to Nineveh. He didn't destroy them in the way that he promised should they continue in their evil. Listen, their faith wasn't mature. Their faith wasn't strong. It certainly wasn't filled with assurance by any means whatsoever. But it was genuine faith. And we know that because it was marked by repentance. Trusting in his gracious character, they pled with God that he might be merciful to them. They were not his people. They were strangers to the covenant and the promises, but they hoped that God, who had sent this Jewish preacher, might be a God of love as well as a God of holiness, and he was. They threw themselves helplessly upon his character. True spiritual revival is a remarkable thing. We see something of it every time a man or a woman comes to faith in Jesus Christ. But to see an entire community, to see hundreds upon hundreds of people come to fear God, to honor God, to repent of their sin and to put their faith and trust in the work of Christ, that's an amazing thing. And as God's people, we need to be faithful to pray that God would give us hearts of compassion enough to want revival and to remind all men everywhere that God is merciful to those who repent and believe. There's a tremendous encouragement for us in these truths this morning. God forgives sinners that repent and turn to him. God wants people to turn from their evil ways and return from the violence which is in their hands. He wants to mend their lifestyles according to his word. And when they do so, he treats them with kindness and generosity. Let's not embrace and protect our sins. Let's leave them behind us and find in God the forgiveness that we so much need. Brothers and sisters, if you are struggling at this time with some sin, turn from it. If you hesitate to ask for forgiveness and to correct something you have done, stop hesitating. Grace is calling. Mercy is there. God will forgive you. And all of this invites you. Come to God. Find your peace in God alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word and the reminder from your word that yes, indeed, we are sinners and our sin is great before you. But Christ is a great savior.
and his work in keeping the whole of the law and dying on behalf of his people and being raised from the dead is a far greater work than our sin. And so we pray, Father, that for those of us who are in Christ, that we not seek to hide from the truth, that we not seek to run away from what is in our lives, but that we deal rightly with it, that we bring it before you in repentance. Lord, give us sorrow for our sin. Break us in our sin, that there be true mourning that leads to repentance. And in our repentance, we pray, O God, that you would restore us and strengthen and encourage us that in the humility that you bring in the midst of those times, that you would be pleased to conform us all the more to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray for those, Lord, who are outside of Christ, who have heard your word this morning. May you lay upon them a godly sorrow. May you break them of themselves that they may look to Christ for mercy. And for our community, we pray, O God, would you do a great work through your people? Would you see to it that the word of God is proclaimed far and wide and send your spirit to awaken a dead people to new life in Jesus? God, we long to see your churches full because we long to see men and women come to Jesus Christ and live. Give us a compassion for our neighbors that we pray for them, that we plead with them, and that we show them the way of the cross for their good and for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.